0: This is The Lid Is On, I'm Conor Lennon. This week we bring you another episode in Humanitarian Leadership Stories, our co-production with OCHA, the UN Humanitarian Office, presented by my colleague, Daniel Johnson. Thanks for downloading this podcast, UN Humanitarian Leadership Stories in Their Own Words. Insight from frontline responders who are helping people with acute needs in some of the most challenging and dangerous places in the world. In today's episode, we're going to find out what UNA chiefs mean when they talk about being accountable to people in crisis in Cameroon, Central African Republic, Iraq and Pakistan. It's very difficult to raise money in today's world. It's much easier to spend it well. And spending it well means going out there, seeing it, challenging assumptions going with your partners, talking about it and saying, right, you know, how can
1: we improve this? How can we build on this? I would say that's what I've been learning as a a humanitarian.
0: Julian Harness, the UN's top aid official in Pakistan, on why understanding what people want and being close to them, despite the risks, are crucial to ensuring accountability in any humanitarian operation.
2: Part one. Talking the talk.
0: In many situations, it can be impossible to reach communities that have been cut off. There might be physical obstacles in the way, whether it's military blockades, active hostilities, monsoon rains, or other natural hazards that keep aid workers from those in need. And then there's the pressure that humanitarians face to supply aid one way or the other. A common challenge is convincing host countries to allow food and medical supplies into rebel held territory quickly and regularly. For guidance on how to push back against this kind of pressure, I've been speaking to UN aid leaders with decades of experience in responding to emergencies. They come up against these problems on an almost daily basis. Take Matthias Nab, the UN humanitarian coordinator and resident coordinator in Cameroon. His job is to alleviate suffering linked to terrorist activity in the far north and the political and humanitarian crisis caused by conflict between the government and English-speaking separatists in the southwest and northwest that erupted in 2017. In situations like this, he told me, there's no better place to start than at the top.
3: I think it's also important to remind government as well of their obligation to the populations, and in the sense that in the northwest and southwest, where non-state armed groups are hindering access to populations, I think first and foremost in the role of the international community and especially the role of the humanitarian coordinator is to be able to have dialogue with all these entities and especially with government as well.
0: For Matthias, aid leaders must be a voice for communities who are threatened by armed groups, including in areas beyond government control. Often this means having difficult conversations with the host country and rebel fighters too, but dialogue is essential if you're to convince those in authority that people's basic rights must be respected and that aid and aid workers must reach them.
3: First and foremost I'm personally accountable to the people that I need in the sense that uh, they are the vulnerable populations that we are here to serve and so my personal accountability is to them first. Secondly in terms of advocacy I think it's important to always be guided by the international humanitarian law and human rights law that should guide my leadership role as a humanitarian coordinator. Linked to that is my role as a humanitarian coordinator in advocacy to make sure that the government also understands its role in terms of protection for its citizens and the dignity of life their responsibilities towards vulnerable groups that are affected by the conflict or by uh, Boko Haram or even the refugees that are in refugee camps that have rights that the government and the host communities must also show towards them. In terms of advocacy, we need to be able to mobilize the needed attention and the needed resources. If we have suffering populations, vulnerable populations in affected parts of the country, how do we ensure that these are not forgotten people, but that their rights Must be assured in terms of how we mobilize resources to be able to bring the needed assistance to them as well. And especially that we have vulnerable populations like women and children that usually bear the brunt of all these crises that we just talked about.
2: Part 2 What do you know? When
0: humanitarians talk about being accountable to affected people, who exactly are they talking about? In Iraq, it's the country's 1.5 million internally displaced people, often called IDPs. Many have been forced to flee conflict linked to ISIL fighters. Here's how the UNA chief in Iraq, Irena Wojtkova-Solerano, prioritises accountability in emergency settings guided by the principles of promoting peace, resilience and sustainability.
1: We have to start with the most urgent issues. That means with our humanitarian assistance to the IDPs. That is, however, ongoing since already six years. So a humanitarian situation that is actually protracted. So uh, we are actually in a position where now we have since May a new government that has strong commitment to addressing this displacement and to recognize that Iraqis within Iraq should not be displaced and they are now ready to work with the UN to do returns or resettlement to new communities. So we are in the process of discussing durable solutions, various, let's say, menu of different uh, solutions for individuals. They can have now a stable and sustainable and independent life. So I got into this situation and right away was actually lucky that I am working with a government that is more or less on the same page with us. What made it complicated is the COVID situation, which does not allow for meetings. So most of it is virtual, which is difficult to have the first contact with your counterpart virtually. But as everybody is, you know, in the same situation, so we have all learned to live with it and to trust each other even through the virtual contacts.
0: Irena is also the UN Secretary-General's Deputy Special Representative in Baghdad. Now, this is an important additional role because it opens up a direct channel of communication with senior government officials, just as it does for Irena's boss, the Special Representative of the Secretary-General, the SRSG, as we'll hear.
1: The Prime Minister is in close contact with the SRSG I am the deputy SRSG, so I am dealing with his deputy. The Deputy Prime Minister is basically my daily counterpart and assures that whatever we discuss, that this is also right away coordinated with the Prime Minister and has his backing. And this is a very unique situation, which I hope that we will be able to use to the maximum to really bring people back home or to give them new homes. It needs a strong commitment from the leadership of the country. So from the Prime Minister, it needs a strong statement to all the government entities that this is a priority to work with the UN on addressing the displacement situation. Iraq is in a situation where there are a lot of informal leaders that have different influence on different parts of society and geography and uh, this is something that I have to balance, but also use the whole UN system that I have. So it's not all up to me. It is I have to understand the structure and use all the contacts that agencies have, that OCHA has, that OCHA has developed over the years, and then to uh, rein in when it's necessary from my level. But fully understanding the complexity on the ground is absolutely key to take the right decisions on how to move forward.
0: You're listening to UN humanitarian leadership stories in their own words. First-hand insight from frontline responders tackling aid emergencies all over the world. Part
2: 3. Trust your instincts.
0: In today's episode, we've heard how crucial it is to stay close and accountable to those in crisis. No less easier task is reminding governments and armed groups not to harm civilians too. Another key value that aid leaders rely on is trust. In a war zone without trust, how can you be sure that armies and non-state armed groups won't block aid convoys trying to cross the front line? If delays do happen, they can eat away at the credibility that the UN's humanitarian leaders have worked so hard to build with communities, governments and everyone in between, and with it, that vital accountability to populations in need and to donors whose support is so important. Perhaps this explains why aid leaders go to such lengths to build trust and credibility with the most vulnerable individuals. Here's Denise Brown, the UN's top humanitarian official in the Central African Republic, a country where big chunks of territory are controlled by non-state armed groups and almost every child needs humanitarian assistance. Let's hear her advice on how to stay close to those most at risk outside the capital, Bangui, over a rather crackly line.
2: We spend a lot of time out there. I spend a lot of time, the NGOs, the UN agencies, the communities know who we are, the armed groups know who we are, and they know what we do. So this week we're flying with the helicopter on the border between the Central African Republic and Chad because of the flooding. So we ensured that the armed groups knew we were coming, that we were carrying supplies for the community, and we deliver those supplies. So that our credibility comes from that. You know, it's about ensuring that we understand needs of the population, that we understand their access, their access to markets, their access to fields, and that we negotiate that access with non-state actors when it's required. And the humanitarian community has to do that. There's no political negotiations, it's access. And so you have to move on all of those fronts at the same time and manage those different pieces at the same time, as well as being cognizant of the very challenging political situation that you're in so it means juggling many many balls at the same time
0: when you really really need to reach people in need it's not always an easy call
2: i think the greatest unknown i ever dealt with was somalia where uh, there were very few humanitarians on the ground and we were dealing with an organization al-shabaab that was classified as terrorist at one point point. and that one we took a lot of risk but we took a lot of risks to avoid the deterioration that we later saw in 2010 which ended in a famine So the risks I take now, as you rightly said, those are calculated risks, not outrageous risks, they're not cowboy risks. I know what I'm doing, I know where I'm going, I know who I have to talk to. And I also know I need to be very aware of the political context.
0: Politics. While a political announcement can be as disruptive as gunfire to humanitarian operations, one way that aid leaders can defend their work is by referring back to people's needs on the ground. Practical tools that humanitarian leaders can use for this include face-to-face needs assessments. They cover everything a household requires, from health to education, food security, protection and water. Last year, Denise Brown's teams managed to get potentially life-saving data from 9,000 families in Central African Republic, despite restrictions linked to the COVID pandemic.
2: The development actors don't even have that kind of data. So that's a tool which allows us to understand nuts and bolts what's going on in the communities. And that's hugely valuable for planning our assistance.
0: In many communities affected by conflict and natural disaster, simmering tensions between communities can resurface. To counter this, humanitarians work hard to establish dialogue. Here's Denise Brown again on how the UN's work can have a positive impact on those who've been ripped apart by ethnic division.
2: Listen, this morning, I spent my morning in pk which is the arrondissement in Bangui, which is known for its insecurity. And last December, 50 people were killed there on Christmas Day. I spent a lot of time there with all the different actors. Doesn't matter who they are. I spent a lot of time sitting and listening, but I spent a lot of time sitting and listening across the board. So no one feels excluded from the process and everyone sees even as little baby steps of progress that they can all see what's happening. Transparency is key. This is a very challenging environment for all of us to work in. So the more uh, diversity we have in terms of gender diversity, geographical diversity, it brings a lot to the table. So bringing people around the table and then working with the community. So this morning in the meeting in Pika, there was one woman there and she was sitting at the very back. So it's of course my responsibility. How do I bring her into the conversation? She was only woman in that meeting apart from me, a whole community of men sitting in front of me, and she was hidden at the very back. So how do I bring her slowly out without disturbing her, without disturbing the community, but allowing her voice to be heard? It's challenging to do that, but very special when it does happen. She talked a little bit about her work. She's the teacher in the local school. She was completely veiled. It's a Muslim community. And she talked about uh, which classroom for which child and which materials they needed to get the school really up and running. And so, you know, she spoke in her comfort zone, but I created a little space for her to use. And that's up to me to do that as the woman sitting there representing the United Nations and having to to ensure that the dialogue I'm having with the community reflects the diversity that we talk about in the UN.
0: I mean, it sounds invaluable if she was the only woman in the room what did you learn about her specific needs
2: really it was very practical they need the kids from unicef for the kids they need to ensure that they have enough chairs for the kids that there's a bathroom built for the kids very practical stuff but that practical stuff allows the children in that community to come together around a small school and that's about inclusion and that's about feeling valued so the practical stuff has a much bigger picture behind it
0: Denise Brown there, the UN's top aid official in the Central African Republic, sharing a few trade secrets on how to lead a humanitarian operation today and what accountability means in an aid context. For more episodes from this series and to see short video profiles of other aid chiefs from Lebanon to the Philippines, just search online for OCHA and humanitarian leadership stories now. Thanks for listening and goodbye.